Let's go ahead and pray, <clears throat> and then we'll, um, I'll tell you what I want to try to cover tonight. Father in heaven, we do thank you for being with us through the day. Thank you for your grace and mercy and kindness. Lord, the fact that you are always the same and from everlasting to everlasting, you are God and you're kind and good to us and we thank you for it. We pray your um, presence with us here tonight and with the kids and the junior high and the senior high, everything that's going on tonight, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, before I forget it, let me mention something to you um, that we sent out in the church email today, but we'll announce it Sunday and, and start receiving an offering Sunday for um, Paul Anderson's family. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of expenses with um, any death, but especially when you're 12, 1,500 miles away, and there's just a lot to deal with there. So anyway, we're going to take uh, receive an offering for Trish and the family to cover um, those kinds of expenses. So just to let everybody know, um, you can put it in the offering Sunday, you can give online, however you want to do it. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> wanted to let you know about that. <clears throat> now, I want to just finish up what we looked at last week with um, on Martin Luther, kind of a summary of his legacy and what, what he contributed um, to Protestantism, what we still have today, really, that as a result of his influence. Um, first, in Luther's legacy would be um, the answer to several questions, major and basic questions. One, how, how are we saved? How do you become a Christian? Um, the general sense then was it's by works. It's by doing uh, things that earn you merit with God. Luther rediscovered, he didn't come up with anything new, he rediscovered the clear Bible teaching that we're saved by faith. Faith in, <clears throat> in Jesus Christ as the atonement for our sin. And so no man or woman can boast of personal goodness that was achieved by personal effort um, <clears throat> for a lot of reasons. Maybe just quickly, let me give you two. That doesn't work because sin-infected people cannot cure themselves of sin. I don't know if you guys saw it. I think it's been years and years ago. I don't even know when I was here. Maybe it was back in Oregon or whatever. But there was an ad <clears throat> for a rehab, alcohol rehab place. And they started out with someone dressed all in surgery garb as if they were a doctor. 
they laid down, no one's in the emergency, or no one's in the operating room, laid down on the um, table under the lights, alone, reaches up, flicks on the bright light, takes out a scalpel, um, opens up the scrubs, and starts to make an incision on himself, okay? Of course, then the picture stops. Everyone says, or the announcer, this is absurd. No one can operate them on themselves. No one can fix themselves. And then they went into the idea of you need outside help, so there's this rehab place you can go to to get help. Um, <clears throat> really, that is the same absurdity um, to the notion that by my own efforts, I can somehow cure myself of sin and the separation between me and God because of my sin. God has got to be the originator and the outside rescuer of me as a uh, sin-ruined person. And Luther, that was nothing new, I mean, it's in the Bible, but Luther rediscovered that truth. And so that we are saved through faith in Jesus and we have nothing of which we can boast ourselves. There's no such thing as bootstrap religion. Second <clears throat> thing that Luther addressed, the source of authority. That's another huge question. What is our source of authority? It began in the New Testament church that the apostles teaching um, their authority was the authority. They put their authority in writing in, we call it, the New Testament. That was the source of authority. All arguments over doctrine or new teachings cropping up or whatever else were settled by going to what does the Bible say? It gradually evolved until by the time of Luther, over 1,500 years, the authority was the church. And particularly, uh, particularly the, the papacy, the cardinals, you know, the College of Cardinals, the church councils. Um, scripture was elbowed off the stage. And so a new source of authority came in. Um, Luther restored the order of authority to its proper uh, level, scripture first. Um, the Latin, he used sola scriptura. The Bible is our authority, not the church. Now, that does not mean <clears throat> that churches and ministers and so forth have no authority. Um, it doesn't mean that we are not to put together, we're not to systematize the teachings of Scripture into logically arranged doctrines. It doesn't mean we're not to do that. There are people who say, 
um, <coughs> certain denominations, um, even on some of their church buildings the, or church signs or whatever, we have no creed, no creed but the Bible. Okay, that sounds really neat. Um, but if you have, if you got uh, 200 people in your church, you got 200 little sources of authority because it's how they interpret the Bible. Um, we, it's right that we have statements of doctrine that, that say, with the help of the early church fathers, reason, intellect, and so forth, here is what we agree that the Bible teaches about God, man, sin, salvation, end times, so forth, okay? Um, so, Scripture alone is the source of authority. Third, <clears throat> what is the church is a third major question. What consists of the church? Who makes up the church? Well, at the time in the 1500s, Roman Catholicism made it clear no one's in the church except those who are in, they use the term, the ark, like Noah's ark, the ark of the Roman church under the authority of the pope. If you're not under the authority of the pope, obedient to the pope and so forth, you're lost. You're not in the church. You are, you are outside of salvation. You are <clears throat> somebody that would be um, outside of Noah's Ark. You're going to drown, okay? Um, Luther, again, merely restoring um, biblical teaching that <clears throat> the church is, as he put it, the universal priesthood of all believers. Now, universal priesthood of all believers is a huge statement. It's everyone, everyone that is a, a believer in and follower of Jesus Christ is a part of the church worldwide. Okay? Um, second, they do not need, any Christian does not need a, an earthly mediator to go through in order to connect with God. Jesus is our mediator. So in prayer, I can pray to God directly without aid of a priest, a human priest, at all. The whole point of Jesus becoming our high priest is that I go, I come to the Father through the Son. I don't need an earthly priest, priesthood with its whole system of authorities, of absolving sins, confessions, withholding certain graces to punish. None of that is in the Bible. So, <clears throat> What's the church? In a global sense, it's the worldwide group of believers. In a local sense, it is a local gathering of believers 
among whom the word of God is preached and the sacraments are administered. Okay, that's kind of a, an official definition. Now, um, the fourth question is, what is the essence of Christian life? Now, you might think, what in the world is that even about? In that day, there was the most strict, uncrossable division between sacred life and secular life. Sacred life were the monks, the priests, the nuns, you know, the bishops, the pope, so forth. The clergy. The clergy handled all spiritual matters for the secular society. The secular society then was completely separate. They couldn't do anything regarding God without going through the clergy. And so you had a um, second-class citizenship, which were the laity, okay? Um, laity didn't, um, all they did was go, go to the required rituals and have, in a sense, salvation done for them. Now, this goes way back, uh, tells you how, how uh, old I am. <coughs> when Jimmy Carter got elected, if everybody, those of you who remember that, he made a huge deal of being a Christian and being born again. Well, it was, a, you know, being personally converted. That wasn't any news to us. I mean, you know, the, see that in Scripture and so forth. But he made such an issue of it, it was talked about in the media a lot. So President Ford, who he was running against, got the same question was put to him. I still remember um, Ford being somewhat flustered, a little bit um, unsure of what to say. And then he came out with this answer. <clears throat> he said, well, I have a relationship with God through my church. Now, he was Episcopalian, but, you know, which we jokingly call Catholic light, but he was reflecting the lack of any understanding of a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The, the dear soul didn't even get it. Well, it's through my church. Yeah. It's because they say the prayers. They distribute the Eucharist to me. They approach the throne of God on my behalf. I don't. And so it's a sort of a religion by proxy. And there's nothing personal and warm-hearted about it. So you can know about God, but you don't really know God. Um, Luther said there is no <clears throat> division between clergy and laity. We all are equal before God. Yes, there are specific roles for us to fill. God calls some to ministry, others he doesn't. Um, but there is no hierarchy there where clergy are better and above laity. It's a myth. 
we're all stand in equality before God, all of us needing a Savior and all of us needing to come to the Father through Jesus the Son, okay? On the other side of that, then he taught, rightly so, um, <clears throat> that whatever a person does, laity or clergy, is unto God. The scriptures are full. That New Testament, you know, is do all your work, all your labor, whatever you do, do it unto, unto the Lord. So if you're serving the Lord by preaching, being a missionary, or um, driving a haul truck, do it as unto Jesus. Do it as if Jesus is watching you. Do it as a representative of Jesus. Teaching school, I don't care what, whatever it is. So there is a, an obliteration of the historic um, gulf between clergy and laity. It ended up being called, and it's what made America um, especially great, even economically, um, manufacture-wise, technology, everything. It was called the Protestant work ethic. The Protestant work ethic is straight from Luther, and the idea is, whatever I do, I do it I do it right, I do it well, I do it legally, I do it you know, as best I can because I'm doing it as a service to God and to the society around me. If you take the Protestant work ethic and put it into practice in, in a country, um, you're going to be the world's leader in industry and manufacturing and inventions and so forth makes sense okay now what have we what do we have today we've lost that um, and it's reflected in our decline as as a culture as a society um, those are four major questions that Luther left lasting answers to then just a couple more things maybe more <clears throat> well just in addition to those. Um, Luther had a heavy influence on church in the sense of congregational singing, music. He made music a big deal. Uh, he wrote a lot of hymns. He was dealing in many cases with people who were not literate. And so here's what Luther said. Um, I will sing my you know, theology, I'll, I'll sing biblical theology into my people's hearts through song. Um, music's a powerful medium, and it doesn't matter what culture, it doesn't matter whether it's secular or whatever. Um, words carried on a tune stick. Um, and so the Protestant practice of congregational participation in um, singing and so forth is a legacy of Luther. <clears throat> Second, education, especially for children. Um, Luther, of course, meant an education in a Christian context. Um, he wrote 
the, what's called the long catechism and the short catechism, um, teaching that if anyone was here was, had anything to do with being raised in a Lutheran church, um, you go through the catechism, and then you're confirmed and so forth. Um, but everybody's got to learn Bible basics, and it's, it's good. Um, a third thing, Luther was um, heavy on family life. Now, you had, of course, the <clears throat> there was a strange, how can I put it, little bit of a diminishing or demeaning of marriage. Now, that because if you're going to really be a servant of God, you're celibate. All the priests, all the nuns, all the popes and archbishops and all of their children were celibate. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> Even that. So it was a lower it was a lower class, as it were, of people that were married. Now, you think, well, where does that come from? Well, it goes way back into the 400s, and I think I talked to you about it. But there was this notion that all bodily appetites, drives, desires are in and of themselves fundamentally um, evil. And so especially guys like St. Augustine and some of them, uh, singled out sexual desire and there was a name for that it was called concupiscence it was a special brand of sin okay so you have what God created and said you know it's not good that the man should be alone I'll make a helpmate for him I mean God endorsed it he is the one that invented marriage the attraction of the, the sexes you know, binary or non-binary to each other, okay? Um, somehow, the notion crept in that marriage itself was sort of a, yeah, you got to have it because we got to populate the earth, but it's a icky sort of a deal that real saintly people don't get involved in, okay? One of the early things that Luther did <clears throat> taught eliminated the celibacy of clergy he himself being a monk he married an ex-nun um, and encouraged all the um, clergy and nuns who left convents and monasteries to be Lutherans to be married you know and that a happy home, and he had a happy home, I don't know how many kids he had, um, but elevated family life to its proper biblical honor um, <clears throat> rather than treat it as sort of an evil necessity. Finally, <clears throat> in spite of Luther being really blunt and really in some cases a bit too harsh um, 
this is another thing that's not, shouldn't be a big deal. Freedom of conscience in matters that are not essential. Okay, now what do I mean by that? I'm talking again about doctrine and practice of Christianity. There are certain things that are not negotiable. There is a God. <laughs> there, the Trinity is not negotiable. Jesus, um, birth by a virgin, crucified, resurrected, ascended back into heaven, is not negotiable. Um, there's a lot of things then on which you, there must be agreement. There must be adherence. But much, a lot of other things, worship styles, even back then. <clears throat> what kind of worship did you have? Um, did you allow lay participation? That was something Luther and some of the early reformers did. They allowed lay people to read scripture. They allowed lay people in just what was considered just a ghastly disaster. They could carry or hold, you know, the plate of bread and the cup of communion, um, which was never allowed. The clergy or the laity, in fact, were not allowed to take of communion um, of the cup. They could only eat the bread. They were not allowed to even drink the cup. Only the clergy could drink the cup, and they drank it on behalf of the people. How that works, I don't really know. But somehow the people got credit for you know, drinking the cup without drinking the cup because the priest did it for them. Um, on all those kinds of things, the participation of laity and things, Luther urged, um, if there's differences, culture to culture, whatever, leave each other alone, as long as we agree on the main, main issues. That was also radical, okay? Because you literally were not allowed to have, um, you didn't have your own conscience. No one said, well, that's what I believe I should do. That's unheard of. You did what the church told you, that's it. Or you go to hell. Two choices. Now, <clears throat> any questions on Luther? Because I'm going to move on um, from him um, because there, there became, I was thinking about an illustration, maybe, maybe you've got to have a, kind of a map in front of you in your imagination. But if you look at a map of Egypt and you see the Nile River flowing <clears throat> from the south, north, it's one stream, just one blue line. But when you get near the Mediterranean, it'll break into a couple and then those break into a couple and you've got just a mass of tributaries that pour into the Mediterranean Sea. That's kind of like the Catholic Church and the Reformation. It wasn't just Luther and the Catholics and that the Luther almost unleashed an avalanche. And you had then, we talk about the Reformation, but the Reformation is a combination of a whole bunch of smaller Reformations. Because remember then, state and church 
were, it was unheard of that they would be separate. They're one and the same. City councils voted on um, the priest or the archbishop or whatever. I mean, there was just, it was one and the same. Um, the city government would, would uh, decree that people went to church. You got to go to church or we'll, you're fined or you're imprisoned. Um, so there was no separation between government and church um, of any kind. But once Luther broke away, then you have individual reformations. Like there is the Swiss Reformation. There's the Scandinavian. You could call it Denmark. Some of those um, included Iceland. There's the English Reformation, um, French Reformation. So the Reformation took a lot of different forms and initially seemed to be pretty much on the same page. But the same pageness didn't last 20 years before you have guys who say, well, I don't, you know, they're in, they're in Switzerland. And yeah, I've read all the stuff of Luther, but I don't agree with him on this. And so here in, Sw in Switzerland, we're doing it different. And so you, you, got, a, you got another branch, okay? And that just kept, Multiply. Now, <clears throat> having said that, then, um, yeah, I ask if anybody's got any questions or thoughts or comments, um, and we'll move on, if there aren't any, to other branches of the Reformation that were going on. Just Luther was kind of the first, but very soon after him, even in the same decade of the 1520s other countries started having the same kind of thing, okay? Um, <clears throat> let's turn to, yeah. Yeah, um, you could say that in general, there are probably, well, yeah, I'll answer that and then I'll, then I'll contradict it to some degree, okay? In Protestantism in general, at least on paper, there are probably those four main doctrines or teachings of Luther that the, the source of authority uh, is scripture okay that's a peculiarly protestant idea second justification by faith um, experienced in a personal conversion um, in each individual person's life okay that would be a second major doctrine third major doctrine of protestantism would be the priesthood of all believers, meaning every one of us can pray for ourselves, go to God by ourselves through the chief high priest, Jesus, and I don't need any earthly intermediary. Those would probably be, within Protestantism, all the churches that, 
broke away from Catholicism would at least in their beginnings and their foundations and on their paper statements be, agree on those three things, which are major. They cover a huge amount of ground. Catholicism, um, I won't spend much time on this, but maybe in the next week or so, there was something called the, the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Okay? The Counter-Reformation on the part of the Catholics was a certain amount of admission that we got problems. Yeah, we got corrupt clergy, m too much money, people buying priesthoods, and the sale of forgiveness for sins before you commit them. They at least got together among themselves and said that these Protestants have got some points. And so they semi kind of cleaned some things up within Catholicism in response to the Protestant rebellion. Um, but in, in essentials, Catholicism hasn't changed since the Reformation. They still believe that the ultimate authority is the church. Scripture comes in, but only, to, only I'd say in America, um, I'm going to see the 70s or the 80s, was the first time Catholic churches began to push personal Bible reading at all. Part of that was in response to an, an explosion of what was called the home Bible study movement, which happened in the 70s and the 80s, where a lot of people gathered together without a, a minister. These you know, couples, like small groups, really, got together and studied the Bible. Um, <clears throat> and that caught on so much that it began to, a lot of Catholics began to Catholic lay people began to attend those kinds of Bible studies in their neighborhood. And so it was sort of a, where the Catholic Church responded initially, don't do that because only a priest can interpret Scripture. But then they couldn't hold back the, the dike, and so it kind of encouraged it. Okay? But generally, Catholicism hasn't changed. It's Protestantism then that agrees on those probably three major doctrines. Um, of course, they all believe uh, the, the Trinity, the virgin birth, all those things. Um, but all those come from Scripture, which is covered in the Scripture is the source of authority. Now, the problem you've got in that answer is you know, just, try, just trying to name the United Methodist Church, um, several of the Presbyterians, because there's more than one, um, some of the Lutherans, not all, um, certain even Baptist churches, um, have gone so completely liberal that not only do they not believe these things anymore, I don't know what I don't know what they believe. Um, the United Methodists, which is the history that I'm out of and our our church is out of, <clears throat> um, I mean they have they have Native American hymns in their hymnal of pagan spirits and you know wackiness. Um, 
ordaining homosexuals, blessing same-sex union, all, all that kind of, none of which is in their statement of faith, but they just ignore it. Over the last 150 years, they just, let's not even go to the trouble to change it, we'll just ignore it. Um, so, in, in theory, Protestant churches agree on several main big doctrines, but practice in a lot of ways is, is different. Now, is that a halfway answer? <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> okay. There's two groups. I guess I think there's a bit of logic, logical order in which to discuss them. There are two groups. This, the, Luther, the Luther's Reformation, to no surprise, is called the Lutheran Reformation. Okay? So there's the Lutheran Protestantism. The next group is called, <clears throat> um, that we'll discuss, is called Reformed. Now, I got to be honest with you, I don't know where the name came from. Yes, they, they were reformers, but they're called that to this day, the Reformed Theology. Now, the first, this Reformedism started really not in Germany where Lutheranism was, but started in Switzerland. And there were two main guys, one just before the other one. They overlapped their lives. But the first guy, um, you'll need to memorize this and spell it correctly, Ulrich Zwingli. <laughs> Okay, um, Zwingli, <clears throat> almost all these people were either Catholic clergymen or educate, well-educated Catholic laity. Um, Zwingli read Luther stuff, um, is, you know, separated. He's, he's in Switzerland. <clears throat> but um, Zwingli like 90% of what Luther taught, and he agreed with him. But on something that in that day, and I, how can I say this? In that particular day, it meant it was a huge issue, partly because it had been made too big of an issue by the Catholics. And that is the issue of the Eucharist, communion, the Lord's Supper, okay? Now, understand me, I obviously believe in the Lord's Supper, okay? It's one of the two sacraments Jesus established. One is baptism, the other is the Lord's Supper. Um, Catholicism over the centuries added five more sacraments. So that today, uh, the Catholics have seven sacraments. Protestants only have two. They threw five out after in the Reformation. Again, because the other five sacraments, marriage, holy orders, extreme unction, or, or last rites, um, penance, I can't remember exactly, aren't in the New Testament. They're not in the Bible. So since only baptism and the Lord's Supper are that's all Protestants. In 
getting the barnacles off and getting back to basics said, listen, Jesus established two, this is only two. Um, communion then was a huge issue. And the reason was because um, in Catholicism over 1,500 years, it had come to where that is what saved you. Faith did not save you. Faith got lost. But the Eucharist is what gave you spiritual life. Without it, you would die. So excommunicate somebody meant cut them off from communion. They couldn't take communion. And if you cut somebody off from communion, they go to hell. They die spiritually. And that came from the notion that we've already covered that when the priest said the blessing over the bread and the wine, that literally, though it kept its same appearance, literally turned into the body and the blood of Jesus. So you drank the blood and ate the flesh of Jesus, and that's what gave you spiritual life. As the, and, and it only gave you spiritual life if it had been blessed by a priest. So you could have maybe back behind the, you know, back wall of the sanctuary, you could go back and get into the store <coughs> of bread and wine and maybe drink it and eat it yourself. It didn't do you any good because it wasn't blessed by a priest because the, the magical total transformation of that wine and that bread into literal flesh of Jesus and blood of Jesus couldn't happen unless a priest blessed it. So there's you ha you, there you have everything, um, you know, hourglassing down through the priest. And all he had to do is just cut you off. You didn't give, you didn't do this, you didn't obey here, and so you don't take communion. So Philip, you're going to a nice hot place and nothing you can do about it unless you knuckle under. Pay how much I tell you to pay or whatever. Then we'll allow you access to communion and you can, your spiritual life can be restored. Okay? Um, <clears throat> now, so a big question even for these Reformation people who broke away from Catholicism and didn't believe in transubstantiation, that it turns into body and blood, they still, it was a huge thing to them, and it was, okay, what do we believe about communion? Okay? Um, Luther, transubstantiation is the position of Catholicism even till today. Luther came up what was called consubstantiation, <laughs> okay? Now, consubstantiation means the bread and the cup are, are nothing more than the bread and the cup, regardless of who prays over them or doesn't pray over them, okay? Still felt it needed to be prayed over, and we have that in our ritual. We say, you know, bless and sanctify these elements. Um, <clears throat> but Luther believed, while it didn't turn into the blood and body of Jesus, the presence of Jesus in a spiritual sense was 
was present with those elements of bread and wine. So, you were eating and drinking and gaining some kind of spiritual strength and grace and blessing by doing it. Okay? Zwingli didn't like that. He thought it was too close to Catholicism. So Zwingli in Switzerland started teaching that it, the bread and the wine were merely symbols to help in the um, memoriam of, you know, Jesus says, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So Zwingli's feeling was the bread and the cup, while it matters, you should treat it respectfully, it's merely representative of the body and blood that Jesus gave and shed on the cross for our sins. And therefore, there's nothing, there's never any magical thing. There's not even whatever it was Luther meant by the presence of Christ in um, the elements, but not actually turn them in, turning them into it, okay? Zwingli didn't agree with that. Well, that was enough. Today, we would probably kind of, what? Um, not then. I mean, Zwingli and Luther, they had meetings, they had mediations, they had bunches of other, you know, um, more and more clergy in the Catholic Church were joining Lutheran and the Reform movement. So they would all get together and try to hash out, okay, who's right, Luther or Zwingli? They never could settle it, never did settle it. Neither of them would give any ground. So there was a growing separation then between the German Reformation and the Swiss Reformation. Um, <clears throat> that was the main thing there was communion. Um, then along comes a guy, and I guess we'll, we'll shift or stay with what the Reformed. After Zwingli, Zwingli got killed. Zwingli was killed in a, a little war um, between Catholics and Protestants. Now, wars between Catholics and Protestants just broke out all over everywhere because you have a province like in Germany. Germany was just a patchwork of provinces who stayed Catholic because the, the, the duke or whoever was a Catholic. The next door neighbor county or province, the guy was a Protestant. The duke of so-and-so was a Protestant. Everybody was a Protestant. If, you're not a, if you don't want to be a Protestant, I am. You move over to the next county where the Catholics are or vice versa. And then the problem is those people died and their sons came up to be duke you know, Junior Duke, and then Junior Duke, dad was a Catholic, but he's a Protestant. So then everybody's moving to the next county again, okay? It was really kind of nuts. Uh, it's this time of mayhem. Um, and to the detriment and the disgrace, really, not only Catholics, Catholics were still you know, firing up the, the bonfires and burning heretics at the stake. But the problem was, it wasn't too long until Lutherans 
were burning Catholics at the stake, or Lutherans were burning Zwinglians at the stake, and Zwingli people were burning Lutherans at the stake, okay? Um, and I gotta say, much of what the Catholics prophesied about, you go this way and you're gonna have these crazy lay people who they didn't really trust, they're gonna, they're gonna go nuts. Well, <laughs> in a lot of ways they did. Um, it took a lot then for some of these leading reformers to get their followers back in line and say, hey, 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 you can't, you know, you can't, you can't do what the other side once did to you, burning you at the stake. Leave them alone. You can't do this. But anyway, it was a time, not a good time. Zwingli got killed in one of those conflicts. Meantime, I got another guy moves to Zurich, Switzerland, by the name of John Calvin. Okay, now John Calvin is well known, and it's interesting today. Um, I don't think it was more than three or four days ago in the Wall Street Journal. I read in a political article about so-and-so, um, some particular politician and a period of time in American politics when it says the Calvinistic view of man, of humanity, okay? Nobody knows what that means, but the founders knew, um, and so did an awful lot. The Puritans, everybody knew the Calvinistic view of humanity. The, <clears throat> I'm getting off here, but the um, separation of powers doctrine in our government is totally based on the Calvinistic slash Puritan view of the human heart, okay? It assumes that the heart is black as the parking lot, okay? Um, Calvin believed that we are just hopelessly depraved, okay? Therefore, the human heart can be 100% predicted what the human heart will do. It will be selfish. It will be murderous. It will squash the opposition. It will defend itself at all costs. Not too far off, okay? So then, frankly, the genius of the founders of our system knew you couldn't get, you know, in their minds, you couldn't get rid of that unless everybody became a Christian, which wasn't going to happen. So what do you do? You create a delicate, a delicate three-part balance between everybody's selfishness and it will keep, it'll keep things balanced. It's a precarious balance. And if, you, if one gets above the other, you're, you're in trouble, okay? But they base their whole, well, it's like in the, either the Declaration or I don't know what, one of the official doctrines, it has this phrase, men are not angels. 
That's considered, quote, the Calvinistic view of humanity. Um, so our system is based on that belief. And it's counterbalanced. Now, <clears throat> so John Calvin was much smarter, I, I shouldn't say, more educated than Zwingli. And he was trained, uh, had some training in law. Okay, And so he, interestingly, approached theology and the Bible and Christian religion with a legal mind. That's good, it's bad. Okay, Because legal minds can be divorced from feeling and emotion and reality. Okay, So, um, with the death of Zwingli, the Swiss Reformation ends up being led by John Calvin. Okay? Now, um, he basically ended up, <clears throat> uh, he lived in Zurich for a while and some different places, but he ended up in Geneva, which is, of course, still there. Geneva, Switzerland. Um, Calvin and his teaching took over the whole city. The city council and the government was fully support. They were Calvinists, okay? They were fully supportive of everything Calvin did. And again, church and state, there was no separation at all. For instance, the um, Geneva and several other places in Switzerland. But they passed a law that I think it was you had either two or three months, can't remember which, you had two or three months in which to baptize your new baby that was born or you're exiled from the city. Okay, now that's not passed by the church. It was passed by the city government, which was the same thing as the church because they enforced the church rules. And so they said, you don't baptize your infants um, by the time they're three months old or whatever, you, you're, you're kicked out of town, okay? Um, I got us, I don't have a lot of time here, so I'm gonna just give you the Cliff Notes version and then we'll get into it further. But Calvin, um, uh, who knows what was going on in his head, but Calvin kind of shifted to God the kind of rigid authoritarianism of the Catholic Church, which he rejected. But he applied that same iron-fisted, no exceptions to God. Okay? And he had this notion, and never could get it out of his brain, that the, uh, the ultimate attribute of God, the greatest of all of his attributes, he, yeah, is he all-powerful? Yeah. Is he all-wise? Yeah. He's, he's all those things. But the greatest one was his sovereignty. He's the sovereign. He's the king. And as sovereign, it can't be that his will ever be thwarted. Ever. 
Now, if you go there, you just deny free will to all humans. He didn't mind that. We don't have a free will, according to Calvin. It sometimes looks like we do, because some people reject God, some people accept God, obey Him. That's only appearance, because God has determined, um, and I'll get off into the weeds here in a second, but God has determined before we were ever born who would be saved and who would go to hell. Okay? So you think you're responding to God of your own free choice, but it's God that is moving your will to do that. You have nothing to do with it. Okay? Now, the only argument Calvinists pretty early on got into was um, superlapsarianism or infralapsarianism. Okay? That you don't have to remember. Supralapsarian, come, the word lapse, is the fall of Adam, the human race, into sin. Did God make the decrees of who would be saved and who would be lost even before he made Adam and Eve? That's supralapsarianism. Okay? Or did he wait until Adam and Eve did sin and then God chose from then on, who would be saved and who would be lost. That was a real fierce argument. <laughs> Never mind that the whole thing was stupid because God didn't predestine somebody to be saved and somebody to be lost because that makes him the author of sin. That makes him the one we could really say, like the comedian of 40 years ago, Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. Or in this case, God made me do it. Really. It's, I think it's one of the lousiest, dumbest doctrines to ever come along. Um, it is alive and well today. Okay? Now, the notion that Calvin had is to allow a human a creature of that creator, the capacity to choose, and to him it was unthinkable that God would allow that creature to have the capacity to say no to the creator. Well, the answer to that is God, God in his sovereignty made a creature and sovereignly chose to give them a free will and sovereignly determined that he would honor that free will by their rejection or acceptance of him. He sovereignly chose that. It's a problem. But he, 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 he couldn't get his head around that. So, what that ended up producing um, was <clears throat> a whole new kind of reformation. Now, Lutheranism sort of edged close to that, but not near as close, okay? So, Calvinism then became, and there was, it, it gained a foothold and total control, basically, over Switzerland. It also went into the Netherlands, you know, today Holland, the, what was called the Low Countries. 
It also, interestingly, didn't do a whole lot in England, though it was clearly there. But it was stronger in Scotland. Okay? Um, so, let me jump way ahead to just give you an idea. Everybody here has heard of Presbyterians. Okay? The Presbyterians were primarily in Scotland. And the leader of the Presbyterians who really started that movement was a guy named John Knox. Um, but the Presbyterians were, and still are, some of them, because you got different Presbyterians now that have split up. But they were Calvinists, predestination people, okay? Um, I don't want to get too far and then have to quit. Um, but, well, here's another, here's another branch. Later branch in that stream of Calvinism were the Puritans who came over here to America. Um, and the Puritans had the same grim kind of view of humanity and even of God. God was kind of a scowling, angry, iron-fisted despot. Don't cross him. The idea of mercy, kindness, you know, and grace, and, even, and sacrificing his own son for our good kind of got lost in this legal thing. Um, and so that becomes symptomatic, or that's a symptom of that kind of, especially back then, that kind of religion. Very rigid, stone-faced, don't smile kind of religion. Because your God's like that. Here, the bottom line is this. Humans... If we don't let God create himself, meaning through the scripture he defines who he is and we don't mess with it. If we redefine God, we always end up mimicking what we've made our God to be. Okay? Um, and if you create a God who is just kind of gleeful, sending people to hell, that's the kind of worship you're going to give that kind of a God. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Calvin, but I know it's some others um, who were inheritant or who were heirs of his thinking. Um, didn't mind this statement. Hell is filled with the screams of babies because they're damned. He didn't choose for them. He didn't choose for them to be saved. Okay. Um, now. How anybody would even how how anybody would serve a God like that? I have no idea. Um, but but I'll tell you one thing. Even if there's screaming children in hell, the sovereignty of God is intact. That was their thinking. He's still sovereign. Um, I went to school seminary with a, and I can't get into this. I'll explain it next week with a five-point Calvinist, okay? Five-point Calvinism is this rigid five different points. Anyway, I went to seminary with a 
with a um, five-point Calvinist. And every day we'd go to class, kind of the routine was go to class, everybody brought, usually brought, you know, sack lunch, go into the, you know, kitchen dining area in the school, and I can't even remember his name now, get our lunch out, pray together, argue with him, then go back to class and do the whole thing the next day, okay? Um, because none of us were within a country mile of being five-point Calvinists. Um, what he was doing there, I never did figure out. We frequently asked him what he was doing there. Um, but at any rate, um, he would always resort to this. And it, this was a standard Calvinistic answer. You could say, that is illogical. It's contradictory. God is contradicting himself. He says, I will have all men to be saved, except for those that I determined before they were born they'd go to hell. We'd say, stupid. His response, rather than saying, no, it is wise, it is reasonable, it is, is, yeah. But it's man's view that it's stupid. It's not stupid to God. And then he'd quote the scripture from Isaiah. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So that, so what if it's illogical? It's illogical to fallen, small-brained humans, but not to God, so shut up about it, basically. And the argument was, everybody deserves to go to hell. It was the niceness of God that he saved one out of ten. You know, you know what I mean? The other nine could, hey, you had it coming anyway. Just be grateful God was so nice, he'd save one out of ten, or whatever the percentage is. Um, the bottom line is, I don't think, you, you just can't talk to them. Um, but they are, um, they are around. And, um, well, I got to shut up, because we'll get into more weeds. We'll finish, well, you know, what we started here. I'll give you the five points where Calvinism spread to, and then you have, you have people breaking off from that with little disagreements and, and um, then we'll get into, so we'll, we'll finish up Calvinism next week and likely we'll also then finish up what's called Anna, A-N-A, Anabaptists, okay? The Anabaptists were the wackos of the Reformation. They were the radicals. They felt that Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, whoever else, didn't go far enough. And so they believed, they, they, were, they were the crazies. Um, and they believed you just should trash the Catholic churches, burn them all down, kill the priests. I mean, they were just crazy, okay? Um, but they provoked wars, they provoked a lot of stuff. And out of the crazies, came the Amish. Now, oddly, uh, that's a wing of them, the Anabaptists, but they went the other direction and became pacifists. They didn't believe you should fight in wars, you just own a gun, you know, or, or a, I guess even a spear or a sword, whatever. So some of the Anabaptists, the uh, Amish, Hutterites, Mennonites, they all, they all had their roots in 
the radical Anabaptist wing of the Reformation. Okay? Um, anyway, so we'll quit. <clears throat> um, I hope that's, you know, you've got to be honest with me, which you probably won't, um, you know, because you don't want to um, think you're hurting my feelings. Is this just too confusing? Okay, well, it just gets to where, you know, some, there's just kind of tentacles that go everywhere, and it's kind of hard to keep, keep it straight, but anyway. All right, well, let's pray, then we'll, you can go out into the balmy, whatever it is right now, and try to get your car started. Father in heaven, thank you for letting us be here tonight. And again, I pray that we would learn from history and errors and, and well-meaning people who got off the track and just all the things that went on are to some degree helpful to us to know um, errors not to make. Keep us safe, I pray, as we go. Dismiss us with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.